All right, welcome to another episode of IC Doc Talk. Um, thanks for joining me today. Today, I want to talk about I, the term is very cliche now, but I want to talk about work life balance uh, because it's something that everybody needs to achieve and to work on to have sanity uh, in our you know, Western culture life that lives that we all lead. Whether you do what I do, which is anesthesia critical care or whatever, whatever it is that you do, you need to achieve work life balance. Um, and I, I kind of want to, so, so I basically, I'm going to describe a little bit about my life, what I do to, to try to achieve work-life balance with having a very, uh, you know, a, a job that is very hard and very demanding and is, is hard, not only with time, you know, it takes up obviously a lot of my time, but it's psychologically demanding. It's physically demanding. I'm constantly moving throughout the day. Um, it's cycle, it's a uh, morally demanding, it's ethically demanding. So, you know, how do I achieve these things and also go home at the end of the day and not, uh, you know, scream into the uh, uncaring void? <laughs> right. So let's uh, let's talk about the day that today. And so uh, maybe I'll maybe I'll kind of talk about some principles that will maybe will help you in your life as well. So here we go. Let's do it. <clears throat> so first off, we you know, if you're living in a Western culture like I am, I think most of my audience is, uh, but maybe not. Don't want to make any assumptions. We, let's, you know, if you zoom out and just kind of think about it, we, li- we lead very strange lives. Uh, so, you know, we, we're becoming increasingly isolated. You know, our home lives are becoming increasingly isolated. Like maybe, maybe you have a family, maybe you live with someone, maybe you, maybe you don't, maybe you have roommates, maybe you have a cat, maybe you have pets, whatever. Uh, I, I feel like there's a trend of isolation and compartmentalization. So you have your home life, whatever you do, and then you go to work. Maybe you did that at home, or maybe you, you commute or something. And it maybe has something that has nothing to do with your life, but you try to. It's try to. It's it's supposed to be enmeshed with our identity, like our job and our career. We clearly, uh, ident- we in our culture, we make that part of our identity. One of the first things you know you do when you talk to someone, I've, and I've tried to avoid this now. But one of the, when you meet someone for the first time, and the first couple, you know, and if it's a setting where you're trying to get to know somebody, one of the first things you talk about is what do you do for a living, which honestly is a, I really I'm, I I try to get away from asking that question to people uh, the last few years because our identities are not our jobs. I I really want to make that point. What whatever your identity is not your job. You are more than your job. You're more than what you're than just the amount of the labor that you do. Now, obviously, your job may or may not, it may have a lot to do with your identity. It may not have a lot. It may not have a lot to do with your identity. But I feel like we should not equate ourselves, who we are, with with what we do to, to, to you know, get a paycheck at the end of the day. I, there's something dehumanizing about it. So it's just, it's just weird, these lives that we lead, where we, you know, you, you go work for somebody, you either get paid... I mean, you, you basically either work for somebody, you know, a corporation, you work for a bank, meaning you took out a loan to run your own business, right? So if you're, so if you're an entrepreneur, a quote unquote entrepreneur, and you run your own business, you probably took out a loan. You may have taken out a loan. And so if you took a loan, you work for a bank uh, to pay that back, uh, or you work for a corporation, or you inherited money. Um, there's really not, being self, I, I'm getting off a tangent here, being self-made is like, is anybody really self-made? <laughs> anyway, let's. I, I digress from that point. I don't want to go down into the weeds too much on that. My my point is, your job should not be your identity, and um, 
you need to have a your identity outside of what you do. And I think one of the one of the biggest things why people have struggled so much with their job, whether you know you may be listening to this and you and the chances are if you're listening to this, you hate your job. And I think one of the things that is extremely lacking why there people can be depressed about their about their job is you do not have an outlet for creativity. I think the human mind is engineered for creativity. We must have an outlet of creativity, whether that's at your work or your home. You have to be creative. Um, and I think that is one of the key things to having a work-life balance is you have to have an output for your for creativity. Now, creativity is a really broad term. You can be cre- I think you can be a coder, right, and be creative. Uh, a computer coder be creative. You can you can uh, be a, an office administrator and be creative with your job. The the what can be so soul crushing is when that creative spark that you have is is discouraged by in your workplace or by your you know quote boss. We the creative outlet is a must to be to have any sorts of uh, sense of like well being and happiness with with what you do for a living. In my opinion. So I'll, I'll get back to the kind of, you know, having a creative outlet in, in a minute. But <clears throat> I think one of the keys to having work like life balance for me is I do not bring work home. I don't work at home. Um, what I mean by that is, so let's say, I, you know, I'm on a week of seven days of ICU and I'm taking care of sick patients, uh, you know, et cetera, for seven days. And it's near 90-hour work week and it's exhausting, all that. Many things happen. Patients will die or will resuscitate patients and will get better, et cetera, et cetera. And then I get a, I have a week off after I do the seven days, which is a which is a, a necessity for if you're going to do if you're going to be an ICU physician, if you're a resident or a med student with listing and you're thinking about critical care, um, so usually you get some time off. It's called compensation time. It's not it's not vacation time when you do a stint in the ICU. Some institutions only allow you like only give you like two or three days, and then you go back into whatever you're doing clinic or or if you're a pulmonologist or back at the OR. Where I work, I get seven days off, and that's not unique to my job. Many places do that. I, I, here's what I highly recommend, just for you, if you're listening, that you're, if you're thinking about going to critical care, do not take a job unless uh, in critical care unless you get a week off, because it's not it's not a luxury having that week off. It's a necessity to have sustainable critical care staff. You have to give them time off, um, appropriate time off, to so they don't feel like automatons and robots, um, so they actually have a life. So. That is a must. I would not do critical care unless I got seven days off after doing seven days straight, you know, of a 90-hour work week. I wouldn't do it. I would just do straight-up anesthesia. So I have that luxury of I can just go and do I can stop doing critical care at any time, and I can go do I can just do pure anesthesia at any time that I want. Anyway, but uh, so that week off is a necessity to get, to get your life back on track. So you, you must have time to decompress. So one of the, one of, one of the things I'm talking about is I, I'm – so is don't take I don't work at home what I mean is I don't once I'm done with that week in the ICU and I have that week off and I'm spending time at home I do not look up patients I don't I can I have a I can remotely look bring up patients charts at home I do not be like oh I wonder how that patient's doing I wonder and it's not that I don't care of course I care about how patients are doing but I just I'm not I cannot be uh my mind and my heart cannot be at the hospital when I'm at home. It's just, it's not good for my, uh, you know, my mental health. So I do not open a patient's chart when I, when I'm at home or when I'm not working, I don't do it unless I'm preparing to, to go to work or something. I don't do it. I know lots of people do that. Again, if you're in medicine, listening to this, if you want my, if you want my unsolicited advice, don't do that. You need to get away from the hospital. Your head cannot be there at all times. It's not healthy for you. 
So now, if there are patients that I want to know, obviously, when I go back to work, I will bring up their chart and I'll see how they're doing. And I'll see, you know, I, I don't want to just, uh, you know, do all these interventions with patients and then just be like, well, you know, best of luck. You know, I do care about how, how things turned out with patients. And, you know, and I inevitably, when I bring a patient's chart, when I go back to work, sometimes they had died and sometimes they had survived. And that's just the way that the world turns, you know, in, in medicine. Um, another thing with that is, you, you not only should you not work from home, but you shouldn't take all of the responsibility of what happens to patients does not rest on your shoulders. It absolutely does not. I don't care if you're the uh, you're an attending or you're a nurse, you're a critical care nurse, or you're any type of nurse in the emergency department, nurse, whatever. No, in the system we we work in a collaborative health team, right? So no outcome is wholly dependent on you. Uh, now there is exception to that. Um, so. It's, it's possible that a healthcare provider can make a mistake, and that one mistake leads to patient harm and patient, patient death. That happens. It, it absolutely happens. So with that exception, which I'm going to talk about in a minute, uh, with that exception, the, you know, the outcomes are, you know, if a patient's had a long hospital course, they've been hospitalized for 60, 70 days, whatever, they come to the ICU, and, you know, I take care of them, and, and then while I'm there on my watch, quote, my watch, it's not my watch, it's everyone's watch, you know, they die, that's... I have learned that rolls off my back, I, uh, meaning I do not internalize that patient. The hu- I, You cannot internalize the human tragedy when you're in critical care that happens over and over again. You cannot bring that into your heart. It, you will. It's not sustainable. You cannot be psychologically, mentally sound um, if you're going to continue to do critical care when you do that. So what I guess what I'm saying is, you know, you can't internalize every part of your job and then and then make and then also make it part of your identity. I think that's unhealthy. Your job is not your identity and the things that occur at your work. And this just this I think this applies to everybody, whatever your job is, not just critical care. That your job is not your identity. The things that happen at your at your job, whether you have interprofessional conflict with some with a colleague or with your boss or whatever, that is not your identity. That is not who you are. You are someone separate from your your work. You're not you're not an automaton working at a job that is not your identity. <clears throat> and I think there are, you know, the corporate forces want that to be, to be our identity, right? And want us to fall in line, want us to conform, um, you know. And there's many reasons why corporate America is a very toxic influence in all of our lives. You know, the culture of corporate America. But I don't know. Just, again, you, your job is not your identity. You should not be internalizing what happens at your work. What happens to your work is there. It's not all of who you are. Now, the next thing to talk about is obviously having your social support system. Everybody must, every individual needs a social support system. It doesn't matter if that's your family you were born to or your best friend or your uh, same-sex partner or whatever. Everybody needs a social uh, network that they rely on. Uh, And I'm afraid to say that I don't think everybody has that. And I think you must have that to have a sustainable work-life balance. I have my wife and baby girl, and they are everything to me. Um, you know, I just get so, when I'm at work and I'm about to end a shift, I get so excited to see my daughter um, and just to spend as much time as possible with her. That, that uh, you know, and I know not everybody has children and everybody, you know, wants children. But I'll just say uh, I, <laughs> I highly recommend it. It's a... Uh, Having a child is completely, it makes, it makes 
it's made for me has made everybody everything else before having a child just seem pretty trivial um now that i have a child i don't want to uh you know preach too much the uh well okay i will say i think sorry i'm going to take a tan- tangent here there seems to be there's in the on in liberal culture there seems to be this um trend of making it a moral imperative to not have children that it's a moral imperative that you know with the way the world is and how awful things are and, and climate change i completely reject that notion i think that's uh, absolutely absurd uh, absurd in my opinion i think having children is is a, an extremely noble endeavor and to raise children to understand how the world works and to be empathetic and you know try to and try to try to have them be as wonderful human beings that could possibly be is one of the most incredible endeavors a, a person could take so i reject that total that liberal uh you know, on the left, some some uh, uh, of that sentiment of like, oh, yeah, we shouldn't have children anymore. I see it all the time on TikTok videos and I just keep scrolling. I'm like, I don't agree with that. Anyway, I won't I won't uh, uh, preach uh, children anymore, but it is a having having a child is an amazing part of my work life balance. But it brings tons of complexity to your life. I mean, it, com- it complicates every other aspect of your life. Here's a, here's what's something that's interesting before I had a, my daughter. This, I, okay, this is, before I had my daughter, so when I did like a seven-day ICU week, it was exhausting, right? Being seven days in the ICU, exhausting, 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 my gosh. And I, would, I would come home at night, and my wife would be there, and I'd be like, I can't do any, I'm, I'm shell-shocked, I can barely function, I'm just going to go to bed, you know, it was like that for seven days, and then like even at a few days on my week off, I was just recovering mentally and psychologically, that was before I had a child. Now that I have a child, uh, it's way easier. What I mean by that is it's, there's something about having a child is difficult, right? Raising a child is like one of the hardest things a person can do. Now it makes work seem so much uh, just uh, fundamentally easier on, on every level. And I'm not as exhausted at work, uh, you know, psychologically. And I come home and I'm ready for my daughter. It's like the, 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 the work just melts away. Uh, because the challenge of, of raising a child is so is there's so much more to it that it makes what I thought was I, I guess my point is what I thought was a big challenge uh, but putting it in perspective is totally different and I tell my wife all the time my wife stays home with our daughter she's an educator and teacher but she now stays home and I don't I'm not trying to be like some feminist pandering man but her job staying home with my daughter is harder than my job it is harder than my job because she is always on when she's at, when she's at home alone. She is always on. There is no rest, right? There's no respite. There's no team that's that's working with her in our particular family situation, right? It's a completely different dynamic than the ebbs and flows of my workflow at work. The labor of working at home is harder than what I do as a anesthesia critical care doctor, and I'm not I'm not exaggerating. I 100 percent believe that to be true. All right, let's move on to so okay. What are we? What are, I forget what we're talking about this week. So we're talking about uh, uh, geez, sorry, hang on. Oh yeah, work-life balance. Sorry, I had to go back. It's I've I took a couple days break. I forgot what, what I was even talking about. Uh, so achieving work-life balance. Uh, I guess I'll say also work-life balance is one of those corporate like propaganda catchphrases that you know like oh work-life balance or mind space or mindfulness. You know these these like kind of stupid um. Uh, catchphrases that are used in corporate propaganda, you know, lexicon to uh, so that corporate corporations can look like they, you know, they relate to us and stuff. And burnout, all of these, all of these terms have been reappropriated by corporations to be like, oh yeah, we understand. Here's solutions, and they, you know, offer a pizza party or you know whatever something that anything that will get will uh, stop you from, <laughs> you know, trying to unionize. 
uh, and going on strike. Anyway, I, I digress that point. But I, but anyway, work-life balance, obviously, it's an important thing. So uh, leisure time. Let's talk about leisure time. You must have leisure time. It, I, I cannot stress this enough. You have to have leisure time in your life. Uh, you know, people are like, oh, they feel guilty about binge-watching Netflix or playing video games. It's like, no. You are if you are freaking working really hard at your job, like you need to come home and you need to turn your brain. So I mean, just speaking to my from my own experience, I have to have leisure time like that. I have to have it every now and then, or I really start to go crazy. So for me personally, I mean, there, I don't do anything special, right? I I I, uh, watch, I love TV. I watch TV. Um, Netflix is great, and I love video games. Video games for some reason, I've always played video games. Video games relax me so much. Uh, you know, typically, except when they're like too stressful, then I don't like playing a video game as much. Uh, but video games are an in- amazing way for me to, to really relax. I have a PlayStation 4 and a Nintendo Switch. Absolutely love, um, uh, me and my wife play video games. We'll play the Switch all the time. We'll play, uh, the two games that me and her like to play together are Zelda Breath of the Wild. Uh, we've put in so many hours in that game and just, just exploring. Oh my God. Just sitting with my wife, just exploring. So fun. Like, like digging up mushrooms and it's just amazing. And then, uh, Stardew Valley, which is a great game. Uh, if you have, if you're not into video games, um, that's a good game to play. Uh, it's very, Stardew Valley is very relaxing. It's like a farm simulator, which sounds boring, but it's actually not. There's tons of stuff to do and it's so fun. So relaxing, non-linear, low pressure, just very chill vibes. Um, so that is basically what, what are we talking about here is, is escapism. You got to You have to have some sort of escapism. Uh, and that's different from something that you are, you know, if you're, if you're, if you're playing video games and watching TV all day long, that's, that's a different situation. But here's my point. If you're listening to this, I give you, and you're looking for an excuse to go binge watch a show, go and do it. You deserve it and you need it for your mental health. I, I think, I don't know. I think watching TV and playing video games and, and leisure time like that is amazing. I think it's amazing. And I think we need it for mental health. Um, another thing I, that keeps my sanity and, and escapism is reading books, right? Obviously, if you listen to this and watch my TikTok, you know, I just, I love books. So I only talk about nonfiction books on this podcast, but I probably read, no, no, no well, I read a ton of fiction, uh, just as much, or maybe, maybe not more than nonfiction. Um, and I love science fiction and fantasy. I mostly read exclusively science fiction and fantasy um, books, uh, uh, fiction books. I'm, I always have a fantasy and science fiction book. I usually read one, I'm usually one a week or one every two weeks, depending on because usually they're long. And I am reading all throughout the day, all day long, you know, at home, before bed, when, when my daughter's taking a nap, or if I have a break at work, I'm busting out a book and I'm reading it. So, and I read a lot and people... I will ask, or, you know, sorry, it sounds like bragging, but I swear I'm not, uh, will ask if I'm, if I'm a speed reader. No, I'm not. I do not read fast. I just read consistently. I'm always in a little free time here and there. I'm always reading a book. Um, and I usually read fiction and I usually listen to nonfiction, but I, at various time to time, but when I'm commuting to work or I'm doing, um, uh, housework or stuff, I'm, I'm always listening to a book as well. And I'm taking notes and then, um, and then I, to, to really solidify that book and get in my mind, I always write a review on Goodreads. Uh, so that's actually what I'm reading. When I'm uh, talking about my book reviews on here, I'm actually just reading reviews that I've prior that I've written. I'm just reading them, my own words that I've written. And I have, you know, hundreds of books that I can choose from to, uh, to read reviews. So that's what I'm doing on this podcast when I'm talking about nonfiction books. So 
it's an important way of escapism. Now, there's another side of that. Like when you read nonfiction, it's a double-edged sword. Because you start to understand, when you read nonfiction, you start to understand how the world works a little bit more, depending on what you're reading. And I read a lot of political stuff. I read a lot of stuff. I love economics. I love stuff stuff about monopolization. <clears throat> As you know, you, if you're listening to a podcast, you know the kind of nonfiction I read. The double-edged sword is as you learn more about the world, you kind of get a little bit more depressed <laughs> about about the world, and you become it, it becomes a little futile. You, uh, you can you can you start to have an existential crisis, particularly if you're a United States citizen and you're not aware of U.S. history, global history, and you start reading about it. It can be very depressing, um, and you can start to be you know, it, it that obviously can affect your again. We're talking about work-life balance here. That can affect your work-life balance. So you have to be careful with what you read, honestly, because knowledge is powerful. Uh, but I guess I'll say that cheesy thing, you know, with with knowledge comes more responsibility and more of a burden. If you start to understand how the world works a little bit more, you can it can be depressing. It can. It can. Uh, I don't I get I get energized by it. Uh, I don't typically get depressed by it, but uh, I get energized by understanding and learning more and more. I'm obsessed with just learning more and more about how the world works. And all that stuff helps to bring balance to my life because I love medicine, but medicine is not my identity. It is not who I am. My, who I am is much more complex than that. And when I'm on TikTok and I post political videos, you know, I, invariably in every video I get someone that's like, hey, stick to medicine. Don't talk about this. And it's like, well, you're, you're asking me to not be me. You're asking me to be a caricature on TikTok that, that uh, does something that only you like. So, and, and that's, you know, that's dehuman. I know it sounds ridiculous, but that's dehumanizing me. When people are like, don't talk about economics, you don't know what you're talking about. Just stick to medicine. Like, you are dehumanizing me and you are creating a caricature. Like, no, I'm going to talk about what is important to me as a human being. Um, anyway, so if, you know, people, I'll, I'll just leave it at that. Okay, and then another th- so let's get back to creative um, creativity. So as I said before in this episode, creativity, I think, is, the, is one of the key things to having work-life balance and happiness in this life. We have to have an outlet of creativity. And I'm not talking about going and drawing a picture, whatever. Creativity means many, many things for many, many people. It's to create uh, anything that you are creating, whether that's a spreadsheet or or whatever. You must have an outlet of creativity. That is an extremely unique thing about the human brain. I think it's one of the things that sets us apart from the animal kingdom, although I think there's creativity in the animal kingdom, but um, is we have to have a creative outlet. And corporate America and corporate jobs, Western corporate culture is absolutely soul crushing to creativity. Why does authority not like creativity? It's because it's 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 a form of dissent, right? Uh, if to conform is to be not creative, right? Conform is to be, uh, to conform to something is to not be creative. So you got to be creative. So my main my main creative outlet is writing. I absolutely love to write. I'm obsessed with writing. When I was in high school, I wanted to be a writer. I wrote a ton. I wrote poetry and short stories, and now I write now. And I love writing novels. I write science fiction. Um, I've written some medical thrillers, and I've written uh, some zombie novels. When I was in medical school, I I wrote a zombie novel, um, and it's not good. <laughs> it's not a good book, but um, I loved writing it. And uh, and since then, I've just I'm always writing a book. I'm writing about three novels right now. Uh, I have a main one that I'm that I'm writing, and I usually don't talk about them much on here because I don't want to feel like I'm like uh, exploiting an audience that I've created for medical content. Um, But whatever your creative outlet is, you know, whatever it is. And I get, I get people talking about to me all the time, like, you know, how do you write? How do you find time to write? And it's like, well, 
you have time, you do, you found time to binge watch that show. You can write a couple, you can write a little bit every day. Uh, all you need to do is write. So, uh, it's just a little every day. And that applies to whatever it is, whatever your hobby, whatever that hobby is that you've been wanting to do for your entire life. I don't care how old you are. There's something that you've been wanting to get into, right? What is it? Just think, stop for a second. What is that thing you've always been wanting to do? You can do it. You can do a little bit every day on it. I, I promise you, you can do it. I have an incredibly demanding job and I'm a dad and a husband and I have, and I write novels and I, I, it's, I'm not, this isn't a, it's not a superhuman feat of strength. I just find time to do it. Uh, almost every day. I, I can't write every day, but I just find the time and I, and then I'm consistent with it. You can do it. I promise you, you can do it. <clears throat> By the way, my pen name is Wick Welker, W I C K Welker, W E L K E R. You can check out my books. I have a couple, I have a, uh, I've read, I, I, put out a sci-fi book this year and last year as well, which I think are my best stuff. Uh, one book is called Dark Theory. The other one's called Refraction. I have, uh, and then I have a medical thrill also. I have um, some free audiobook codes for two of my books, for Refraction and Needlework. If, you, uh, if you're interested, if you're listening to this, um, I'll do a, a, I'll, let's do a deal. If you will write a review for this podcast, or if you already have, or rated it, send that to me. Email me at ICU... Dr. ECMO, I see you, Dr. ECMO, E-C-M-O at gmail.com. Send that to me, like a screenshot of it, and I will send you a free audiobook of my books. I think I have, I, it's first come, first serve. I, only, I think I have like 20 left for each book. I think I have like 40 available for people. In the, and it's only available in the U.S. and the U.K. They don't work uh, elsewhere. So go ahead, and if you are interested, if you want a free audiobook of, of some of my books that I think are pretty good, uh, email, the, email a review to incentivize this podcast to you know get reviews and uh, ratings. And I'll send you an audiobook. So first come, first serve. Uh, I think I, I think I maybe have forty total uh, remaining of that. Anyway, let's move on. <clears throat> All right. The next thing I wanted to talk about with having good work-life balance, just having good mental health, is having us being being part of a community, having a sense of community, which seems to be, from my experience, it seems to be a thing that is harder and harder to a- achieve these days. In the you know in these days of social media particularly right because we've become, become society western society is becoming very fractured atomized very siloed off you know into our <laughs> there's you know factions if if for lack of a better word right because uh you know people with if you have a <clears throat> like a fringe opinion or something like that not necessarily a bad opinion but a fringe or an opinion that's not mainstream we now you can now connect with uh, like-minded people that are kind of everywhere so you can have a sense of community <clears throat> online um but it, honestly, it's kind of, it's created more of a, like a physically isolated community, you know, from the actual communities that we live in physically, I feel like we're more isolated from them for the, for, for the worse. I, I think that is a bad thing. <clears throat> so I think having a building a sense of community and having that sense of community, I, you hear often like, oh, there's no community where I live. No, there is, you, there's a community there. You just don't, you just don't engage with, engage with it. You're not a part of it. Wherever you live right now, that you live amongst a actual physical community. I know I'm just kind of stating the obvious, but you live amongst a physical community that is there. I'm not saying I'm like an upstanding community member, right? Uh, I love to just chill at home and read books and watch Netflix and play video games just like anybody else and, and work and spend time with family. But I, I do think it's important to actually get out of your house <laughs> and go to community events, engage with your community and whatever. What, and there's many forms that that can be, right? Like, uh, you know, me and my daughter 
we went to a pumpkin patch the other day and we invited uh, some people from my church to go. And that was great, right? Engaging with, with people that live in the community, people in a community that I'm a part of as well. And we try to do those things. And I do just think that that, to understand that you are, your life is not just this single serving of working every day and coming home and do, and, you know, putting it on repeat and playing that over and over again into just oblivion, <laughs> right? It's not your life. That, that, is, that is not your life. You are part of a greater good. Despite um, political extremism trying to convince us otherwise, I do believe we are all part of a greater good. We have a, we have a local community. We have a national community, <clears throat> which nationalism is a dangerous force to begin with, but uh, that's another that's a topic for another time. Now, and then I want to touch on, uh, I think just one more thing that helps me keep a work-life balance is, so there's empiricism, right? Which is like, or skepticism, which are very good things. Scientific method, which is like how you discover truth in life. Um, being, you know, trusting in actual physical evidence, you know, materialism, physicalism, whatever you want to call it. And that's how you know what's true is by the scientific method. So if pure empiricism or skepticism is your only ethos, if that is what your ethos is, for me, that is wholly unsatisfying. Let me explain. So what I mean is there's a lot of mystery in life, right? There are, uh, you know, there's mysteries about who you are, what, what your role is. Do you, do you even have a role? Is this all just a chaos this life um is it just happenstance that you're here and then there's a lot of mystery about you know the origins of the universe and ev- everything there's so much that we do not know uh you know there's things that we know you know imagine a pie chart you've probably heard this before you imagine a pie chart there's things to it that we know which is a tiny sliver and then there's things that we know that we don't know which is another tiny sliver and then the rest of the pie is things that we don't know that we don't know right as human beings it's 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 probably infinite what we do not understand the our understanding of life and and the meaning of why we're here if there even is meaning is minuscule it's nothing it's nothing so what i mean is if you're basing your the meaning that you're deriving from life is just based on pure empiricism and scientific method uh, which again i'm not being critical of and being like you know i will only engage with truth that comes from the scientific method well you are you're you're limiting you know you're limiting the scope of of uh i guess the scope of how, the meaning that you're deriving from life because we don't know that much also what we know constantly changes so being a pure empiricist or a pure a pure skeptic which again don't misunderstand me. These are good things. Being a purist and a skeptic are very, very good things. But if you are a pure skeptic or a pure empiricist, you are that's inherently flawed. You are wrong. Why? Because, because science, scientific method and skepticism gets things wrong all the time. And there's always a changing paradigm of what is, what is true. It changes. Now, there is truth. I do believe that there is truth. And we discover what true things are. And we more and more, we learn that they are. But I, I think, in my opinion, it is a pitfall to put your... To derive all of the meaning of life that you derive is purely from science and scientific method. For me personally, is is hollowness. Uh, that is not enough to get me out of bed. 
uh, and engage in a meaningful way with people and to engage with myself and to understand what my self-identity is. Now, I, what I'm, what I'm kind of getting at here is there's so much uncertainty and chaos and ambiguity in this life. And we need to, you need to just embrace it, <laughs> embrace the chaos, embrace the absurdity. Now, that maybe that means engaging with spirituality or engaging with religion, uh, which I do. Now, I don't think you need, I, I don't think you need to be a theist to be happy, uh, right? I, I have a lot of respect for atheists. I am not an atheist. I believe in God. But, but I, have a, I have respect for atheists, uh, uh, and I totally, I, I feel like I understand why you would be an atheist. It's logical. Um, but for me to, to have to, for, for me personally, to derive more meaning from life, uh, it's just that for me, it's just an unsatisfying worldview to have. Now I, I, I know there's probably atheists listening to this right now that are screaming at the top of the lungs and that's fine. You know, email me. I'd love to hear what you have to think. And this is, these are just my opinions and I, I do not think they should be applied broadly. I'm just giving you my unsolicited opinion about it. I think embracing absurdity, which is what religion is, right? Religion is illogical. Religion is absurd in a good way, uh, from from my opinion. Uh, so to be religious, to be to have a sense of spirituality, is not logical. And there's no reason to engage in a in a. Yeah, you see these debates on TikTok and other social media of people debating about the Bible or other religious texts or whatever. It, it's completely meaningless. There's just no re, You don't you don't debate religion. <laughs> You don't debate about God. There's no, this, this is not an evidence thing. It, it's about engaging the uncertainty and embracing the absurdity of life to try to derive, try to squeeze out some meaning for yourself, which is what I do. And, and it's been good for me, for me personally. Now, I know religion and organized religion can be, it can and is a very toxic influence in a lot of people's lives and has been a um, source of destruction and misery in the history of humankind. I, I fully recognize that. At the same time, I also recognize that human beings will find whatever excuse they can, whatever excuse they, they, they need to be horrible to each other, right? Some of the, the worst single party rule in the world are, were a-religious and were against religion, and they still perpetrated much misery, death, and starvation amongst people, uh, you know, without religion. So, and I do think that there is a lot of un, I think I mentioned on this podcast before, a lot of unmeasurable benefits to religion that get forgotten people do not talk about. And a lot of that has to do with a sense of community, cohesion, uh, and a sense of self-identity, and a sense of deriving meaning from life where there may not be any other place to derive that meaning. I will leave that discussion at that. Email me uh, if you, if you want to have meaningful discussions about this more uh, i'd be happy to email about it but those are just kind of my personal opinions anyway i think i'll end it uh you know talking about the topics you know work-life balance i know that kind of went to a lot of different topics but anyway if you're listening to this good luck out there with you know life is hard uh it can be isolating and lonely um, it can be extremely difficult it can be full of misery and unhappiness and tragedy and and sickness and disease and i just want to say that i do think hope is an extremely powerful um drive and is a uh, and when hope is based in you know real things it can be an extremely powerful thing to lift us up from whatever it is that we're suffering from whether that's addiction or the loss of a loved one or you know, uh, mental health um, problems that we have so anyway just uh you know help exists out there and hoping for things to get better Sometimes that's all you have to, to, to get through whatever is going on. 
Anyway, let's get to our uh, book this week. This, this book my sister recommended to me, that my same sister I keep wanting on the show, who's probably listening to this right now, which I find hilarious. She'll text me and be like, oh, I loved your that last week that you talked about this. It is hilarious to me that my older sister listens to my podcast in like an earnest way, not just be <laughs> not just like, um, oh, I'll, I'll listen to his podcast. Like she listens to it and actually enjoys it, which for some reason is just infinitely funny to me. Anyway, so she recommended this book to me. This is by Brené Brown, who I, ne- I had never read um, before and had heard of, but didn't know much about it. This is, uh, and she's written a lot of stuff. She's, you know, prolific. Anyway, this book is, uh, the Atlas of the heart mapping meaningful connection in the language of human experience. This book was absolutely amazing. Um, and very empowering. You, It's very empowering to understand, uh, the power of naming emotions to recognize the emotion that is currently occupying, you know, your state, recognizing it, naming it and understanding it. Just that alone is extremely powerful. Um, so yeah, it was my first read and I just got to say, Brene Brown seems like a really beautiful human being. Her heart and mind, uh, have incredible emotional intelligence. And I highly recommend picking this, um, book up and just discovering what emotions even are. I listened to the audiobook and Brene Brown narrated it and she did an amazing job with the narration of, of the book. Very personally, you feel like she's right there with you. The, the crux of the book is simply understanding emotions better. She goes over something like 80 plus emotions and defines them and then compares them. Just by going through this exercise, just by listening to her, you will understand yourself better, I promise. The significance of your emotional state and how to harness the power of that understanding into changing your behavior for the better. Here's just some like quick, non-exhaustive notes about stuff that you'll learn from this book. So... Anxiety can be both a trait and a state, and a response to anxiety comes out as either worry or avoidance, or both. Dread consumes all of your energy. Even if you're dreading something that lasts only two seconds, you're exhausted because of the dread. The dread is exhausting, not the experience. The experience of fear is actually very short-lived. Comparisons to others is pervasive in our society, and demands that you conform at the same time as standing out, which is not really possible. Think about that for a moment. So when you compare yourself to others, you want you want to be like them, uh, or you want to be do the thing that uh, uh, exemplify the thing that others value in them, which is a which is a form of conformity. But you want to stand out against them. So you you you're trying to conform and stand out at the same time, which is very very hard to do, and maybe even impossible. Basically, comparing yourself to others is completely toxic and it's totally counterproductive and it's toxic to creativity. When you compare yourself to others, you put yourself in that box and you try to work within that box. Uh, Comparing yourself to others is extremely toxic. We all do it. We should connect with others, not compare ourselves. Jealousy, this was great, involves three people. Envy only involves two. Envy often has hostility attached to it as well as resentment. Um, you know, the, there's a, the, the classic, uh, word, if you're not familiar with it, Schoedenfraud means taking joy in another's misfortune. There's actually an opposite to it, which I didn't know. It's called Freudenfraud. I'm, I'm sure I'm mispronouncing it. Taking joy in someone else's fortune with them. Uh, we should have a shared expectation of reality <clears throat> with our partners and often communicate what our expectations are. Boredom can actually be a productive state that sparks new avenues of interest. So if you're bored, it's actually, it can be an opportunity. It's not something that's necessarily bad. Surprise is a short jump from cognition to emotion when you have surprise. 
There is a double-edged sword of nostalgia, which can be a tool used for preserving bad traditions and fetishizing a past that didn't exist. Um, <clears throat> she, what she brought up also was nostalgia, the root of the word. Alja means pain. Which makes sense, right? Uh, I know that from you know medical terminology. Like if you have otalgia, you have ear pain. Isn't that? I just thought that was so interesting that nostalgia has the word painful in it, and n- n- the the emotion of nostalgia can sometimes be painful, right? When you're nostalgic about something, it's like bittersweet. What else? Hope is a cognitive function, right? I was just talking about hope. Think about that sentence one more time. Just hope is a cognitive function. Hopelessness is about a situation where despair is having hopelessness about every aspect of your life mixed with depression. Compassion is recognizing our shared humanity. Compassion includes action that isn't just trying to solve things. Compassion is listening and understanding and being empathetic. Pity is the near enemy of compassion and immediately sets up divisions. Pity is not a good, is not a, is not compassion. Pity is a, yeah, it's like looking down on those around you. Shame focuses on the self and not the behavior so when you're shameful you're focused on yourself and the and your identity not not actual behavior guilt focuses on behavior and not on the self shame and empathy cannot exist together shame and humiliation are never effective social justice tools to shame and humiliate one of my criticisms of left you know social justice culture is that one of the tools several of the tools are shaming humiliating, scolding, um, and it's, it's a form of mob justice, and it is not an effective ju- social justice tool, in my opinion. If you want sh- social justice change, things actually change. Shaming and scolding and humiliating others is absolutely not the way to achieve it, and it's probably counterproductive. It's probably making things worse, in my opinion. Uh, contempt is anger, but with utter dismissal of another person, when you have contempt for them. Contempt, criticism, defensiveness, and stonewalling are really, really bad signs that a marriage is not going to make it. Stonewalling specifically where you completely just shut down and don't even interact with that person. Hate offers a counterfeit bond and moves like a current stoked by cynical leaders. Hate, uh, you know, helps form group bonding amongst like political groups or, or whatever, religious groups, whatever it is. Hate is a bonding thing. Obviously, it is not a durable bond. The goal of hate is to eliminate. Pride is actually uh, a healthy emotion, but it is often confused with hubris, which always involves domination and dominance. Anyway, those are just some of my like brief notes about the book. Loved it. Absolutely loved this book. It was uh, kind of almost kind of life changing. Um, just learning about your emotions and, and learning what emotions are and what you're experiencing. Um, so I, I thank my sister for recommending this book. It's just absolutely beautiful. I, I do want to read more Brene Brown. All right, uh, real quick, let's do a question <clears throat> from TikTok. Uh, this is this question is from uh, uh, Frost13721 uh, on TikTok. Uh, tell us about a time you lost a patient. How did you cope with it, and how did it inform your future decisions as a physician? Well, um, so I, I've lost so many patients. Um, I, I can't even begin to delve into that memory archive. I'm actually, rather than directly answering this question, I'm going to, I'm going to answer it in a different way. Uh, so the, I'll just tell a story real quick. This patient didn't die, but I'll tell you what 
how it changed things. So this, I was in, I was in residency, anesthesia residency. There was a patient getting a double lung transplant. She had like, uh, I think she had alpha one antitrypsin, uh, a, a lung disease that caused, you know, it's like a terminal lung disease. So, so she was getting a, she was listed for lung transplant and she had lungs available. They were there. She, we we're going to go. It was like 2am or something. So we were taking the, her family is there preoperatively. She's, she's over overjoyed. She's ecstatic. Her family's ecstatic that she's going to get a lung transplant and, and we're all just so happy. And, and I'm there with her and I am celebrating with them. I'm like, this is amazing. I'm so glad to be a part of this. Let's go. So I take her back to the operating room, right? Uh, send her off to sleep, put in a bunch of lines, right? Uh, and get, you know, get her fully anesthetized and she's off sleep and she's ready to be, to be cut open by a surgeon and place lungs. So she's ready. Sorry. I don't, I don't know why I'm laughing. Uh, the surgeon comes in and says, Oh, the lungs are bad. So we're canceling it. So we woke her up, brought her back and she woke up and thought she had lungs and she didn't. So needless to say, that was extremely devastating for that patient, patient's family. Here's what I learned from that. Do not celebrate with a patient's family. If you do not know something is going to happen. Uh, that is what I've learned from that. Do not get caught, swept up in the emotions too much of patients and patients' families when something is still uncertain, even if you believe they're going to get lungs, because those lungs might be bad. Uh, anyway, that's kind of an important lesson I learned from that. Anyway, I, I'll wrap it up today, this week, and it was kind of a, I kind of went off on a bunch of weird topics. I don't know if anybody if anybody would really like this. Again, these are all just my opinions, un, unsolicited, uh, and as always, I'm always have to be challenged on any of my opinions. So please email me at icudoctorecmo at gmail.com. Uh, join me on TikTok anytime. I post pretty much every day on there. Uh, my handle is ICU Doctor. Please rate and review. And and uh, let's do that, do that book thing. If you uh, just a reminder, so my pen name is Wick Welker, W E L K E R. It's not my real. Those are that is not my real name. Uh, I do not give my real name out on anything because I'm super paranoid. Um, so you can check out my books. If you leave a review or a rating on any whatever iPod, whatever it is, send me a screenshot of that, and I will send you an audiobook of my book Needlework, which is a medical thriller about an anesthesiologist that breaks bad, or the sci-fi book Refraction. I have limited uh, free, and this is for Audible, the app Audible. It's only for the U.S. and U.K. It only works. So take me up on that. I'll send it to you uh, if you're interested. So thanks. Have a good week. Bye.